as you're taking your seats, I'd like you to you know, hold your Bibles and open your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 3. And just continue on about the announcement you had from Chris Cooper. In the first service, I shared what God had done with me when I heard about um, Chris resigning. And I just went straight to my knees to pray over the few days of hearing that announcement, asking God what that looks like. And so I shared the story from memory in the first service. During the break, before the second service here, I was praying again, and the Lord nudged me to look that verse up that I shared with the first service in my Bible. And this is the study Bible I use at home, reading through the Bible. I thought, well, that's not going to be here. That's at home. My preaching Bible didn't have it underlined in. When I looked around in my chair, this Bible was there. So I opened it up to the morning I read this, how God was answering my anxious prayer about what do I do now about a worship leader? So 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 15. And now I want you to really get, get a hold of this. This word coming up now, I've only saw this morning. And I've shared this testimony with the elders and deacons and a lot of other people as this thing happened to me that morning. But I never saw this word. So verse 15, it says, well, let me give you a background of the story. These kings went out to battle, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't seek God's advice about this battle they were going to go into. They took their soldiers and their animals and everything, but they weren't prepared. They actually ran out of water. So they, they've, got, they've been seven days without water. And one of them decides, you know, hang on a minute, we need to inquire of the Lord. Is there a prophet anywhere we could seek to seek God's help in this matter? So they do, and they find the prophet to bring this to, to find out what God is going to do. And this is how it comes about. Elisha is the prophet that they come to. And in verse 15 it says, But now bring me a musician. I never underlined this part. The rest I did. Bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make the valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. When I first read that that morning, I didn't see this part about a musician. And when as I circled here, I asked the Lord here, what does this mean to me? I love finding verses where there's an impossibility and God does the possible. Impossible. So here are these guys that got no water. And he says, go dig ditches. Really? How's that going to help? And then you know how rain comes. You see the wind blow, the clouds come, and then the rain comes. Well, you're not going to see that. But I'm going to give you water to drink. And this is a small matter to the Lord. So as I really looked at it again, and I said, so how does that fit my day and what I'm facing? And the Lord said to me, well, just go dig in at, at the church, what I called you to do. Go and study. And so I did. I came to church, and I dug into my work. A friend of mine pulled in and said, I was just driving past. I've come to pray with you. So we prayed, and I brought my anxious thoughts in my prayer about my what are we going to do for a worship leader? And as he left, the phone rang. And Mark Schultz was on the other end of the line. And he said to me, Wayne, I've uh, just 
curious, do you drink coffee? And I said, oh, I love coffee. He says, well, how about I buy you a cup of coffee and come to the office? So I said, that would be great. He says, do you remember when I first met you, I told you I had my daughter's wedding and I wrote a song. I said, well, yeah, I do actually. He says, well, I'd like to come today and give you a cup of coffee and, and play it to you. And in walks this man with his guitar, opens it up, sits down, and he plays the song that he's written for his daughter's wedding. Here I am sitting with a musician like he's auditioning for this position. He can sing beautifully, played this guitar so beautifully. I would never have imagined how God would have provided who blew him in the door that morning through this verse. This is a small matter for the Lord. It was a huge matter for me that day, looking at what are we going to do next? How are we going to find someone else? So I just wanted to share that with you. And as from that point on, we started praying and watching how the Lord would continue to open up the doors for us on our worship team. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to look through verses 18 to 27. While you're turning there, I had a wonderful email come in this week from Heather Engelman Brown about Madison, who I baptized here not too long ago, their daughter. When I baptized him, I gave him a little gift card for Culver's to go buy an ice cream to celebrate their baptism. She writes this, says, Hi, Pastor Wayne, I thought you guys would love to hear how Madison used her $5 gift card from her baptism. She has been so excited to get her ice cream and been saving onto the card. Today we saw a mom and daughter holding a sign at Walmart that read something like, Three kids, no job, and no food. Anything would help. If you didn't know, Madison wants to be a missionary when she grows up. And today I saw how much the Lord has blessed this little girl with that gift. She took, it out, of her, she took out her card that she had tucked away and asked if she could give it to them. When she handed it to, to the mom... She let her know how God loves them. When she had handed it to the mom, she let her know how much God loves them. I told Madison how proud I was of her and how she could give up something that meant so much to her for God's work. Isn't that beautiful? Really awesome. And, you know, to, and as I was going through the rest of the week preparing this and looking at Luke's words and how he's written this book for us to follow... There was a question that came up. What are we living for? What are we living for each day of our lives? And I'd like to just share this little story that came in from a friend of mine in Ireland. He says, I have a theory about old age. I believe when life was whittled, has whittled us down, when joints have failed and skin has wrinkled and capillaries have clogged and hardened, what is left of us will be what we were all along in our essence. Exhibit A. A distant uncle, all his life, he did nothing but find new ways to get rich. He spent his last years very comfortably drooling and babbling and constantly about the money he had made. When, when life whittled, down, whittled him down to the essence, all that was left was raw greed. This is what he had cultivated in a thousand little ways over time. Exhibit B, my wife's grandmother, when she died in her mid-80s, she had already been senile for several years, but did this, what did this lady talk about? 
The best example I can think of was when she asked, when I asked her to pray for dinner. She would reach out and hold our hands of those sitting beside her. A broad, beatific smile would spread across her face. Her dim eyes would fill with tears as she looked up to heaven and her chin would quiver as she poured out her love to Jesus. That was Edna in a nutshell. She loved Jesus and she loved people. She couldn't remember our names, but she couldn't keep her hands from patting us lovingly. Whenever we go... Whenever we got near her, she would do that constantly. When life whittled her down to her essence, all there was left was love for God and love for people. You know, Luke is reminding us over and over what Jesus came to do, what he did do, and what he wants to constantly do through us. Last week we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000. But it was more than 5,000, wasn't it? It was the women and children. And some commentaries have said there could be 15,000 to 20,000 people. So that number 5,000 just gets, should get bigger in our mind. As I thought about that over the week, it made me realize when I come to pray about something that I'm needing, how many times do I give thanks for what I do actually have? See, Jesus looked at those five loaves and two fish and he lifted that up to heaven, and he gave thanks for what he did have. He trusted God to multiply that and provide for all these people that he was caring for. He gave thanks for what he did actually have. It really stuck out to me this week. So this morning we're going to read verses 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, and follow along with me here. And it happened that while he was praying alone... The disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? I'd like you to take a moment and think about that question. And I'd like you to hold on to that question and think about asking it to somebody today when you leave church and the rest of the week. To find out what do people say about him? What do they say who he is? Verse 19, they answered and said, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Question is being asked to you this morning. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. In the first service before I came up here, there was a Not an interaction, getting the congregation to respond to the the, the different speakers that came up. So I'd like you to join with me as we did in the first service. Every time you hear me say, but who do you say that I am? I'd like you to answer what Peter answered. The Christ of God. Should we try that? But who do you say that I am? How many of you recognize that answer? When I was studying it this week, it really hit me. We say Jesus Christ, we say Jesus. But I couldn't, I couldn't, when I asked myself, ever remember me thinking about this, the Christ of God. What an answer from Peter. But he warned them, verse 21, and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer 
many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. What a promise. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste the death until they see the kingdom of God. So after feeding the 5,000, we see Jesus is going to kind of retire from public ministry in a way. He's going to spend more time with these 12. He's going to develop them more. It made me think about it as we've gone through Luke. Have you noticed every time there is a change, there's something new going to come about. Jesus goes to a mountain to pray, gets alone to pray. Each important milestone in his ministry, we see that he has got a message from God to announce. He has a huge announcement here in what we've just read to his disciples. Think about what we've just read. I've just seen this man heal, raise people from the dead, and do the most humongous miracle of feeding fifteen to 20,000 people. With five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he's giving them what's going to happen to the future. A huge prophecy. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed. What do you think is going through their minds? What's wrong with this guy? As I thought about it, how Luke writes this, he's very meticulous about his detail and everything like that. And, and have you noticed... He has a sympathizing heart towards people when he writes about Jesus and what he does with the people. He has a way of recording and laying out the truth with such love and concern. And then it reminded me that he's a physician, a doctor. I went for a physical and just being there in the, in the hospital there and the nurses, they're all like Florence Nightingales. The doctors are so compassionate. They give you a confidence, a reassurance that you're in good hands. That's how Luke is writing. It's different to the four other Gospels. Luke relates those things concerning Jesus, which demonstrates how entirely human Christ was as well. His deity too. Luke is revealing to us how approachable Jesus is, how compassionate and loving He is, and always available for those seeking the truth about life. Nothing has changed. He is still available, still compassionate, still loving, still looking to find those who desire the truth. Luke's gospel, if you look at it, what we've looked at now, it should be drawing you to a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Dr. C.J. Vaughan speaks of Luke as the special evangelist of the prayers of Christ. And when I started to think about that, wow, if you really looked through the book of Luke, there's over 26 verses 
taking us back to how Jesus prayed. The importance of prayer. Luke tells us, the man who needed to pray, who loved to pray. He's recorded all these examples of how Jesus went to pray. He pray and, the, and recorded prayers of others. He's setting the example. He is a human. He is a man on earth that is responding to the Father. He's setting the example. This is how you should do it, men. You need to inquire of the Lord. You need to consult with the Lord. You need to be in prayer about everything. God speaks through His Word like I just showed you in Kings there. There I'm on my knees praying, how's this going to work out? In my morning's reading, I didn't even see the word musician till this morning. And I could have rationalized and analyzed and said, well, I can't read that this morning. I don't have my Bible here. The Bible was there. Every excuse I could find wouldn't work. And then he opens it up and shows me, did you see that word a few months ago? Pastor Jake gave me a book called, written by Herbert Locker, and it's called All the Prayers of the Bible. It was fascinating. It is a fascinating book about the, all the prayers in the Bible. And just in Luke, we see so many prayers. The prayers of Zacharias. Zacharias. The Song of Mary was a prayer. A prayer of praise and repentance. In that song, Mary recognizes her need for a Savior. And it also made me think about it as I reread that she said there made me think about the songs we sing as you're saying those words you're making Solomon uh, <coughs> excuse me solemn vows to the Lord you're making new covenants with him look at the words of the songs we read and sing prayer of adoration the angels and the shepherds Simeon and Anna magnified God after seeing the son of God the prayer at the baptism, as Jesus was being baptized, he was praying. He prays when he withdrew from the crowd. The prayer, and then the twelve announced. Praying alone, the prayer of the transfiguration. The prayer in the parable form. Persistence in prayer, both on our own behalf and on the behalf of others as well. Prayer of the prodigal son. <clears throat> prayer out of hell. Prayer of the ten lepers. Pray and not faint. Prayer of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Prayers for Peter's preservation as the devil sought to sift him. Prayer in agony. Prayer in the risen Lord. Verse 18, it says, And it happened that while he was praying alone. You see how God is, Jesus is getting alone to seek God for what is next? What is happening next? I came across this article about fervent prayer. Effective fervent prayer. I'd like to read it to you. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James chapter 5 verse 16. God promises all believers that if we live righteously and pray fervently, our prayers will be effective and produce significant results. How do we treat a promise like this? We might argue, but I do pray and nothing happens. Our problem is that we do not hold ourselves accountable to scriptures. God's word says that prayer ought to, be, ought to accomplish much. If our prayer life is not accomplishing much, what should we do? 
if we are praying but seeing no results, should we conclude that this promise is untrue? Should we excuse this scripture as impractical and unrealistic? Or should we examine ourselves to see if we meet its conditions? Jesus says that fervent prayer avails much. Could it be that we are not as fervent in our prayers as we should be? Fervent prayer means we do not quit easily. Fervent prayer means we purposely spend sufficient time in intercession. Fervent prayer means we cry out to the Father, sometimes in tears, with our heart and soul. Fervent prayer comes as the Holy Spirit assists us in praying with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 26. According to James, our righteousness will ensure effective prayer. God's standard of righteousness is different from ours. He looks beyond our actions and beyond our thoughts. He looks directly into our hearts. How then should we hold ourselves accountable if our prayers are accomplishing little? If nothing happens when we pray, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us, for God's word is absolutely reliable. If we adhere to what God requires, He will lead us to pray for things that align with His purposes. And God will answer our prayers in a mighty way. Think about that. Here's Jesus leading constantly through the book of Luke. Just about every chapter, you open it up, here we have Him praying. He's God. Why is He doing that? Because He came as a man. To lead the example for every man in this room and woman. This is how we start our day. This is how we this is how you do it. You want to see God work through your life? Pray. You know, one time when, when I read this praying alone, I was working for a company, um, a construction company that I got involved in as a managing director. Oh, Pastor Jake. <clears throat> Thank you. Excuse me. Hmm. Oh, that's better. And they were about 1.2 million in debt when I took over as the director of this company. We started working really hard, and I started to pray. I said, God, I need a paradigm. I need something brand new to take us one step ahead of the opposition. And somehow, we need to build up our cash flow. We need to get out of this debt. And so the Lord worked on me as I prayed and said to me one day, What is your passion? What's your ultimate passion about a home, a building? Well, that would be a log home, a cowboy home. So he just knows me. Go for it. So I got on the internet, looked up America, looked up cowboy homes, log homes, found a company in Tennessee, wrote to them and said, do you do any training to teach me about logs and to build a log home? And they said, we do. We have a school here and a factory, and we'll build, teach you to build a log home. So I took off, came to Tennessee for a couple of weeks, studied with them, learned how to build log homes, set up a contract, a business deal with them to ship houses to me by container via sea and we'd do one log at a time. Well, it just took off. Everybody around the world wants to be a cowboy. Even in Europe, Ireland, England. Boy, I didn't have to do much marketing. Just put a picture. You want to be a cowboy? You want a cowboy home? Come and see us. And I shipped everything, the rocking chairs, the cow skins, the, the place to tie your horse up in the front even though there weren't any horses in Ireland. And it just took off. It was fantastic. 
And I prayed when I went down there, Lord, I'm going to be away from home for a long time. Please help me find a church with some godly people to hang around with. My first night there, because they fed you breakfast, lunch, and dinner, then sent you back to bed and came again in the morning. So I'm sitting next to this older man, wearing a checkered shirt, denim jacket. And I said to him, tell me, sir, what do you do on a Wednesday night here? And he said, well, let me think. We have a Walmart. That's open 24-7. I said, I don't want to go there. He says, we have a Sonics. You can drive in and get some more to eat if you're hungry still. I said, no, I don't have a car. I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, I go to church. Oh, yes. Can I come too? And he said, absolutely. I arrived there and sit in the pew. Guess who gets up to preach? My little cowboy in his checkered shirt and denim jacket. I was like, oh. So I got to know this couple very well. And I then invited them to Ireland to come and teach my workers how to build one log at a time. And so they did come. Everything was going well. And one Sunday morning, when we were get, taking them to our church, I just felt really tired. So I went to lie down, be alone with the Lord to get my energy as everyone was still getting ready for church. And I felt the Lord tell me, Wayne, I want you to resign on Monday. I was like, oh, I am really stressed, overworked, I'm tired. And again, he said, I want you to resign on Monday. Oh, I got up, went downstairs, everyone was ready. I said, hold on, I got to go for a walk. I need to be alone with God for a few moments. I got alone with God and prayed, am I hearing you right? Everything's just going so well here now. But if I'm hearing you right, Lord, then I will do it. I'll be obedient. I'll write my resignation, but I cannot have a confirmation. And when the chairman comes and our accountant comes in, every Monday we met because we were firefighting this uh, debt they had, that they would just start having an argument as I'm pouring the coffee. And I know definitely you want me to leave. So Monday morning came. I didn't mention it to Linda because I needed confirmation. I typed out my resignation. Chairman came in. The accountant came in. And they just went for it. Bickering and arguing with each other. And I said, oh, stop. Asked the lady to leave who was my accountant. And got the chairman and handed my resignation to him. As you see with Jesus, as he gets alone, his ministry changes. God has a huge announcement to make. I had a big announcement to make there to that company. Then go home and do the same. Getting alone with God in prayer. Desiring Him to speak to you and communicate. What is His plan and purpose for you is very important. Going back to verse 18. And He said, and the question to them, He was saying, Who do the people say that I am? Thank you. Can we say it again? Isn't that awesome? The Christ of God. That's who we're worshiping here and trusting. When the, apostles, when the apostles ministered among the people, they heard what was being said about Jesus. Remember, he sent them out with the power and authority to heal and proclaim the kingdom of God. So he, they were mixing with all the people around those towns. And they were hearing what they were saying about it. So why did Jesus ask them that question? Jesus was concerned about the twelve, that the crowd's opinion of him would impact their life. They thought of who he was as well. He wanted to hear what they had heard and how much damage that had made to them. And even after weeks of ministry, think about it. We've been following Jesus and these huge crowds are following him, watching him do what he's doing. And they're still ignorant, superstitious. They don't know who he is. 
You know, when you think about it, people need to know who He is. Because what we think about Jesus determines our eternal destiny. The person you're standing with, meeting and talking with, what they think about Jesus affects their eternal destiny. You see, it is impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right about God and think you've got it all right. It's impossible. So what was their answers in verse 9? They said he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Elijah, the prophet of old. So what do these answers say to you, what they are thinking? That he is from God and he's, he holds a high standard of a position, but not the Messiah. They still cannot grasp it. How many of us are sitting here this morning cannot grasp Jesus Christ? Cannot accept that he is real and he's asking to have a personal relationship with you. But he leaves that choice up to you. In verse 20, we see Jesus ask another question to the disciples and to you. But who do you say I am? Isn't that awesome? The Christ of God. The word Christ comes from the Greek term Christos, meaning anointed one. When I was in Greece, I asked people as I went for walks to pray and, and then to meet people on the street. I would say, who is Jesus? And they would say, Christos, who is God? Christos. What does Christos mean? I have no idea. And they just stuck. The whole time I was there, the churches were empty. The only people that went in and out of them were tourists, taking pictures of all the gold and the murals and the tinted windows. The anointed one. See, the Jews, even now, are looking for a special king, that time as well, an ultimate Messiah. Promised by the prophets of old who would separate all of Israel's past anointed ones. The Messiah coming. People looking for the Messiah, the Christ. They expected a political leader. Someone who could raise up an army. Who could remove the Roman rule over them. That is oppressing them. They had a picture of who he is. So that's why I want to challenge you to ask people. Who do you think he is? What do you think about Jesus? I think I mentioned time to you before when I'm in Europe praying at a meal or something. Always someone would come across and say, Are oh, you a Christian? Yes, I am. Have you no idea that that is the cause of all the wars in Europe? What are people thinking about the Christ of God? They wanted to Recapture the glory days of David and Solomon. Subdue the Romans. Establish a world power. A Jewish empire. And what do you think the disciples thought of Jesus at that time? I thought about this in the state of affairs that they were involved in and watching the religious rulers leading them. I believe they were expecting Jesus to bring in the kingdom of God. He talks about it so much. He tells him what it's going to be like. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God all the time. 
I really think they were waiting for him to come and remove this oppressive power, the Roman rule, and bring in the kingdom of God. But what happens? Look with me at verse 21. He gives them a, a revelation, a huge prophecy here. And then he says to them, he instructs them not to tell this to anyone. Why? Well, if you think about all these crowds that are following him, and he knows what they're thinking. These guys are wanting a new king. They want a political leader. They want to take this guy into a position that that's not what he has. In fact, he has a, a radically different plan, a completely different agenda that he is going to share with them. And what does he say to them? The Son of Man must suffer many things. Not only does this predict his immediate future, but the image also alludes to Isaiah, who said he was the suffering servant in chapter 52. Be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Can you imagine their faces when they hear that? Their religious leaders, their church leaders, are going to reject him as, as the Messiah. The stone rejected by Israel's builders would become the chief cornerstone. Be killed and then be raised on the third day. How does that make any sense? And we're so blessed because we have the whole story. We know what's going on and where it's leading to, but allow yourself to get into where these guys are standing with their incredible friend who can heal the sick, raise the dead, teach the most amazing truths. What a major commitment on our behalf he is stating here. He is going to go through with this. Just when things were looking hopeful for the Jewish nation, he brings out that. Verse 23, a disciple of Christ. I love how it says, if anyone wishes, whoever, verse 24. Folks, it's your choice. He's not telling you what to do. He's laying it out there. He's encouraging you to follow him. If anyone wishes. Whoever. Think about those two words. Must deny himself. Ego purge. Take up his cross daily. Live each day for Christ and not for self. Must follow Christ. Denial. It doesn't mean depriving oneself of earthly pleasures. Following Christ may or may not require that. The emphasis on design, de denying oneself, a submission to His agenda. Christianity is absolute obedience to the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, take up one's cross it means to die to one's agenda. Furthermore, the disciple must do this daily. When I resigned that morning, up until that point, many times this has happened to me. So I kind of was expecting what had happened before. Normally someone will knock on the door and say, hey, Wayne, I heard about you. Would you come and help our business? That's how I got into that one. So I waited all day for God to someone, bring someone to me to lead me to the next step that he wanted me to do. Nobody came. So I then had a hike home. Basically asked one of the contracted workers to give me a lift home. Face the family. And I kept expecting God to just open the door like he'd done before. He didn't. 
A couple of days later, as I was praying, saying, did I even get this right? Should I have resigned? Doubt, fear, starting to creep in. I get a call from my brother saying, the doctors in South Africa just called and said, your mom is probably not going to make it. She has colon cancer and it's quite serious. We need you three boys to come down. So we jumped on a plane. We flew to South Africa and she had the operation and she came through. And as we went to visit her, the doctor says, guys, here, here's the facts here. Your mom can't live on her own when she comes out of the hospital. One of you has to stay. So my two brothers look at me and say, well, you're unemployed. You stay, and plus you're the favorite. So she loved that. So I stayed. And while she was recovering, I had many hours to walk on the beach, get alone and pray. And I'm still struggling with, had I done the right thing? And I was sitting on a rock watching the ocean. And the Lord eventually answered me and said, okay, here's a question for you. If you hadn't resigned and this happened, And the same question came, one of you has to stay. Would you have stayed? No. I was in such a high-powered position. I had 60 people to cover for, salaries, marketing this product. That was my life that become so focused on my job. I'd have said no. And that's my answer God gave me. That's why I had you resign. I needed you here for your mother. Now focus on your mother. God is always active. Your life is planned out. There's a purpose and a plan for it. As a disciple, you have to follow him. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Listen to him at what he has planned. A disciple must follow cross. The Greek term literally to move behind someone in the same direction. Come after the main idea is to, do, is to do what he is doing. To follow in his footsteps. He gave it all for the kingdom of God. He gave it all for you and I. To come spend eternity with him. For him the path led to death. The path of his disciples may or may not lead there. But true disciples must be willing to walk behind their master regardless. To be a true disciple of Christ, we must acknowledge and identify ourselves with Christ. Peter was a saved man, but he knew little about discipleship. Taking up a cross and following Jesus. What is that looking like to you now? Salvation is a gift, is God's gift to us because Jesus died for us on the cross, right? And discipleship. Made me think about it this way. Discipleship is our gift to Him. Look what He's asking you to do and give up and get a hold of. If you do it, what a gift to Him it must be. To surrender it all and follow Him, be mentored by Him, led by Him. As we take up our cross and deny ourselves, die to ourselves and follow the Lord, must be an awesome gift to Him. We are not saved from our sins because we take up a cross and follow Jesus, but because we trust the Savior who died on the cross for our sins. After we become children of God, we should be coming, leading into becoming disciples of His. 
A disciple is one who learns by living and working with his teacher in a daily basis. It's a hands-on experience. Every day, when I get off my knees praying, my day, and I'm going to head out that front door, I'm saying all the way to the door, God, I want to experience you, I want to encounter you. Who can I share Christ with? I saw a bicycle on the Craigslist, second-hand bicycle, Cheyenne, and I said, that looks good, find the guy, pick, he sounded really honest, genuine. So I'm going to go get it. I mentioned to Jim about it. And Jim said, well, I'll, I'll ride with you. And I was thinking, well, I, yeah, okay, that's great. I was going to, you know, spend some time in prayer with the Lord, but I'll, I've got company now, Jim. So I arrive at his house, and there he is with the coffee, his Bible, and his glasses. And he says, here's the deal. I'll keep you company all the way down there. You told me you're studying the book of Job at your Bible study. I read, you teach me what it says. Two hours there, two hours back. Isn't that awesome? I could never have seen that coming. It's all planned. It's awesome. Too many Christians are content to be listeners who gain a lot of knowledge, but who have never put the knowledge into practice. Warren Worsby wrote that. Too many Christians are content to be listeners who gain a lot of knowledge but who have never put the knowledge into practice. Verses 24 and 26, have a look. The exchange. The concept of life here. To save your life, you must lose it. To lose your life in me, you will save it. If you invest in the temporal, you will lose all. If you invest in eternal, you will gain everything. You are asked to yield your body and let God do the rest in your life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Comparing the worth of one's eternal life to all the wealth in the world. It's a serious matter. How many are you living for the short-term returns of life? Instead of looking at the long-term investment. How many are you living here for the here and now? By living for ourselves, we die. But dying to ourselves, we live. As we take these words of Jesus, think about what He's wanting you to make a change in your life. Verse 26, it says, Don't be ashamed of me and my words. Don't be ashamed of me and my words. Don't allow worldly influence and opinions to mold you. I'll be really careful of that. Allow me to mold you. You acknowledge me and I'll acknowledge you. Acknowledge me and you will share in my glory. Our motive should be to glorify Christ. 
When the Lord returns, comes again. Look at that verse. So, these guys are hearing things that hasn't happened. And they didn't get it. But it happened. This hasn't happened. When the Lord returns, comes again. Do you believe this? We're going to be like those people, they were hearing what he was saying, but not understanding, not taking to their heart. Jesus Christ is returning for his saints. Where do you stand? Do you reject him? Think about this. Did Jesus receive his glory that he deserved while he was on earth? No. What was Jesus doing all the time he was on earth? Think about it for a moment. Everything he did, he did it for the for his Father, for God. He gave glory to the Father, everything he said. He set the example for every man and woman how to approach God. How to go about your day by coming to the Father in prayer. He was bringing glory and honor to the Father in heaven. What is our responsibility as disciples of Jesus living today? Bringing honor and glory to Jesus' name. And what He accomplished on the cross by proclaiming who He is. He's saying it, saying it over and over through Luke. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Speak to someone. Share the gospel. Share the good news. His question to you is, who do you say I am? Who? Wow. Then proclaim my name. He's saying. This matters. Who does God say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? This really matters, these Christians. Do you excuse some scriptures as impractical and unrealistic? And I've had people say yes. The Old Testament has nothing to do with it anymore. God's Word, this Bible is a history book. Great stories. Do you excuse some scriptures as impractical and unrealistic? Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. Being found in the appearance as a man, that is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the na- at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God, the Father. See, there's critical issues of being a disciple Discipleship. Not who, all, not all of us who attend church are disciples, but we should be. 
We have been called. We have been instructed. We have been encouraged. We have been given the words to say. The verses that lead people to Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. There's nothing more exciting than turning your Bible around and saying, Would you read that verse to me? Read it out loud. And pray while they read it and say, once they read it, what does it say to you? And when they get it right, oh, great. Let's turn to the next one. Read that aloud. What does it say to you? And you pray. You don't say anything. When they don't get it, read it again. Let the Holy Spirit do the work through the Word of God. There is nothing more exciting than taking people through the Word. We have been equipped. Yet many of us choose to sit and just wait for the kingdom of God to come through. If you do that, look around outside. There's going to be many that aren't coming to heaven with us. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And he is coming. I take from these statements that discipleship is not a requirement of salvation as much as a proof of your salvation. In the same study, I found Charles Swindoll offers two principles to this. To consider your relationship with Jesus Christ personally, yourselves. First, he says, following Christ means more than believing Him. It includes obeying Him. One becomes a convert by trusting in Him. But that's just the beginning. Think about this. Birth necessarily leads to living. Believing leads to learning. Learning leads to transforming. Transforming leads to obeying. This is the progression of a Christian. Without which one is not likely a genuine believer. Secondly, he says, living obediently means more than accepting truth. It includes commitment. People live according to the truth they genuinely believe. That's a good statement. People live according to the truth they genuinely believe. Do you believe the scriptures? If a person genuinely believes what Jesus has taught, his or her life will show evidence through daily behavior. A lady walked out of the first service at the door and stops me and says, and when you read that, it reminded me, on my mirror years ago, someone gave me this little card. So every time I go to do my makeup in the mirror, I read the card. And you know what it says on the card? It says, look in the mirror and just look what you look like. Will anyone want to talk to you today? She says, then I take my grumpy face off. And I put my smile on and I go out there so that my countenance is right and ready for people to feel comfortable to talk to me. When you look in the mirror, what do you look like? person genuinely believes what Jesus has taught, his or her life will show evidence through daily behavior. That is not to say disciples obey perfectly. Rather, they need to commit to learn and apply God's word. As believers, we cannot achieve 
perfect obedience or total commitment. And the Lord has not required this of us. But we should see progress. If not, perhaps we need to revisit our decision to trust in Christ. Perhaps we need to revisit our decision to trust in Christ. You know in your heart. Look at Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Where do you stand? When you look in the mirror, are you looking at Him looking at you? Or are you just looking at your image? Are you living the life He's asking you to live out for Him? And as I put my sermons together, I always pray every day as each part comes together. And lately, He's excited me as I've been praying. I've recorded my prayer. So I'd like you to bow your heads in prayer because in this prayer that I wrote here, it's linked to the card that you have in your bulletins, our vision verse. And think about everything we've, everything you've heard this morning. Everything you've heard in Luke, not Wayne. Look what God's inspired word is saying to you as an individual person, as the personal relationship with God. What is he saying? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh Lord, your vision verse for this church is so timely for our lives. Your word, your word tells us what has happened and what is required of us. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on, our, on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet we know him. In this way, no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this body of believers, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh Lord, let us take this truth and live it out in our lives, praying fervently as we follow your Follow you daily, step by step, proclaiming the kingdom of God with boldness. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for how Luke has made it so special by letting his heart and his words come on that piece of paper through your Holy Spirit for us to glean, to connect with you personally in an intimate way. Thank you, Father. We ask you to bless the rest of today and the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We need to just pray, let us take this truth and live it. So now is the opportunity for us.